0: Today is November 19th, 2019, and my guest is computer scientist and author, Melanie Mitchell. She is professor of computer science at Portland State University and external professor and co-chair of the science board at the Santa Fe Institute. Her latest book and the subject of today's episode is Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Thinking Humans. Melanie, welcome to EconTalk.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, this is a really superb overview of the history of artificial intelligence, which doesn't take up too much of the book, but it is in there, which is very nice. More importantly, it's an overview of the current level of the capabilities of AI. It teaches the reader how artificial intelligence is actually used in um, many of its applications today, and along the way, we learn about your assessment of where you think AI is going and how that might affect our lives. So, it's really... a It's a a wonderful book. I I want to start off with a lecture that you refer to from from Douglas Hofstadter when he was at Google. And he, he at that point, when was that lecture roughly?
1: Uh, I think it was around 2013 or so.
0: So he was worried about the progress that AI had made in chess and in music, two areas that he had underestimated. He confessed when he had written his uh, very influential book, uh, Gödel, Escher, and Bach, and he was terrified. He said that AI will make humans obsolete, we'll become relics, our children will be relics. And the part that was interesting about this story was two things. One, that Hofstetter felt that way. And second, that the engineers at Google that he was talking to were puzzled. Uh, so talk about those two reactions and uh, what you make of them.
1: Yeah. So um, the engineers, the meeting was really featuring Doug Hofstetter. They were coming to see him and hear what he had to say about AI. A lot of the engineers at Google went into the field because they had read his book when they were in high school, like many of us. Uh, that was an extremely influential book in AI. He was really a hero of many people. But he got up and started talking about his fears about AI and his terror, not that we would have some malevolent super intelligence running the world and enslaving us, but more that intelligence itself would not be as profound as he thought it was. He was worried that intelligence AI might be achieved in computers via cheap tricks. And he as you said was very disturbed by how far AI had come starting maybe with the deep IBM's deep blue system which beat Garry Kasparov at chess and then per- progressing through watson playing jeopardy and self-driving cars and speech recognition all of that everything and it terrified him because ai was doing so well at these tasks but the google engineers that you know they got into ai because they were inspired by hofstetter they they loved his books and here he was saying, AI's is terrifying. And that was exactly what they were trying to achieve. So they didn't really understand it all.
0: And it's a very deep question that I'm sure we'll maybe dance around and maybe go delve into, which is, um, how should we feel about that? Is Would it be a good thing or a bad thing if, if computers could write music that was better than Mozart, better than Beethoven, if it could write poetry that made us cry and, and create movies that, that excited us and inspired us, right? Is that, you know, like you said, the, the, that's what these engineers are trying to do. That's their job, and and yet somehow, maybe it's because of age, or a different temperament, uh, or sometimes it's a religious outlook. There's something disturbing to some people about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what what we value most about ourselves as humans, sort of what makes us special, is our intelligence, our creativity our ability to create music and literature and so on. So I, I have mixed feelings about this. For one thing, I feel like I, I got it. I, I'm like those Google engineers. I got into AI because I was excited about the ideas in Gerd Lesher Bach. I read it in college or just after college and uh, thought, I want to understand what intelligence is. That's the most fascinating question of all. So I actually went to work with Doug Hofstetter. I was a PhD student in his group. And back then he wasn't afraid of AI because AI wasn't doing very well. It wasn't threatening. Although we kind of rejoiced in both the the programs that we built. We rejoiced in both their creativity and their dumbness because their dumbness really showed kind of how challenging the problem was. Um, So I guess one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was to, to make sense of what was going on because here was Doug Hofstadter, my former mentor saying how terrified he was. That was very surprising to me. Here were the Google engineers saying, I think we're going to have human level intelligence within the next 30 years or so. And me thinking, what, how could that possibly be true? So I started looking into AI more broadly, you know, I'm, I've been doing research in this field for, for decades, but all of, I'm in my own little silo of research, not research, and I started looking more broadly and trying to figure out exactly what was going on in the field. So, that was really the impetus for writing this book.
0: Yeah, there's a sentence at the beginning of the book I really related to, which was,
1: you confess that
0: maybe you were too sanguine, too optimistic about the prospects of humanity in the future, and you decided you'd look into it. And a lot of what I do on this program is interview people, and I've talked to Nick Bostrom, uh, Rodney Brooks, Gary Marcus, um, uh, Pedro Domingos, people who have differing views about where this future might go. And I'm trying to figure it out myself, and you're going to help me today, and and your book helped me, and, and you'll help our listeners – At one extreme, let's put on the table uh, the idea of the singularity, which we've mentioned before, Um, associated with Ray Kurzweil. So what, what is the, that's a, depending on your perspective, it's an extreme view. For some, it's a beautiful thing. Others, it's a dark thing. But what is it?
1: The idea of the singularity is that once AI reaches human level intelligence, that because it's it's a computer, and it's you know computers are extremely fast and they can uh, process data, huge amounts of data, much faster than humans can, and all of that. That the AI will get smarter than humans very quickly. It will be able to digest all of human knowledge, and we'll be able to create even better AIs, or maybe you know, it's uh, improve itself. I'm not exactly sure which, but in this kind of cascading effect where it gets smarter and smarter and smarter. And as Kurzweil predicts, he predicts that by 2045, we'll have intelligences that are a billion times smarter than humans.
0: Ha, huh, only a billion. Yeah. He's,
1: such a, <laughs> he's, so, he's so cautious. Right. You know, I think most people who are actually serious AI researchers roll their eyes when they hear about that kind of thing. And they say, you know, first of all, Kurzweil's reasoning all has to do with his idea of exponential growth. Um, That, you know, we have Moore's Law, which says that computers are getting exponentially smaller and exponentially more powerful. But for one thing, software does not show an exponential trend in any way that you want. And software is, 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 is where AI is sort of at right now. And also, it's not clear that exponential, that we, we do have exponential trends anymore in these hardware areas. And when he says a billion times smarter than humans, he, he's implying that there's some kind of intelligence metric that can be multiplied by a billion. And intelligence, to me, is not just a single thing that... Yeah,
0: it's not a scalar, uh, yeah. a, a one-dimensional digit. You do have to give him credit. He at least he didn't use decimal points. He didn't say it'll be a billion three hundred seventy-two thousand six hundred forty-three point six times bigger than than human intelligence, which would be really offensive. But
1: <laughs> yeah, well, he's—I'm sure he's not done forecasting yet. <laughs> so I think most people look at who know anything about AI, look at the the, the current state of AI, and say that this idea of the singularity is is. Nonsense, to put it bluntly. Um, but there are people who, who uh, believe it. Or, or there's, you know, people believe in slightly less inflammatory versions that we're really getting closer and closer to human-level AI, whatever we mean by that, and that will be there um, within the next 20 to 30 years. Uh, the people that I talk to in AI don't, don't believe that. But I know that the field is kind of split. And as you said, you mentioned Bostrom, you mentioned um, Gary Marcus, you mentioned Rod Brooks, Pedro Domingos. And it's strange when you, when you talk to all these different people, they have vastly different views, not only of where the field is going, but actually where the field is right now.
0: And we're going to talk about that. I mean, um, I, why don't we start with that? I want, as, a, as a background observation, though, that I your book, doesn't literally delve into this, but it made me think about it. it it's, a, I think, a crucial point. Um, I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what knowledge is. Uh, I want to, I'm going to put two types of knowledge on the table and see what what you think of this um, distinction. So, if I ask Siri, which I have to be careful because <laughs> don't
1: mention I'm that in, name. <laughs> I'm in
0: airplane mode on my phone right now, but I've noticed sometimes even in airplane mode, she's she responsive. I don't want to interrupt the the um, flow here, but if I ask her how tall is the Eiffel Tower, or what's the capital of Brazil, or how many home runs did um, Stan Musial hit in 1962, she's fantastic at that, and it's instant. And I, she's probably almost never wrong. Um, I don't know what she does about some facts that are slightly ambiguous, but most facts are just facts. If you ask her, and I haven't asked her this, but if I did, um, if I asked her, uh, does the minimum wage reduce employment, she would not answer that question. She would pull up a bunch of websites and say, "Uh, here's some things I found, because it's not a yes or no question. It's not something you can have, you can have an understanding of it, but you can't have knowledge of the kind like the height of the Eiffel Tower. And I think, uh, you know, just one crude way to make the distinction is data versus wisdom. Um, The idea that a smart machine could cure poverty, that the problem with our attempts to cure poverty is we're not smart enough, I think is a fundamental misunderstanding of what the nature of poverty is. It is not something that is uh, amenable to... Intelligence. It requires something much more complicated. It's what uh, Robin, I think it's Hogarth. uh, I learned from David Epstein in his uh, book Range and in our interview. It's a wicked problem. It's not a kind problem. It's got too too much complexity around it to be. There's too many trade offs. It's too much uncertainty. So I I just think that when people talk about the singularity that that machines will cure all disease and cure poverty, and we'll have every, we'll live forever and ha- be incredibly happy, because they'll know what happiness is, too, as if that's somehow a knowledge problem. I think it's just a fundamental misunderstanding. What do you think of that?
1: Well, I agree with you. I mean, th- you're talking about problems that even humans can't solve. So, that's even one step ahead of what I'm thinking about, because I'm, th- I'm thinking about problems that humans can solve, but machine because they have knowledge, let's say, but machines can't solve because data is not knowledge. So one example is if I'm driving and I see something ahead of me in the road, how do I decide whether I should stop for it or not? You know, if it's a, let's say it's a floating paper bag or uh, uh, a herd of ducks or <laughs> uh, a flock of ducks, i guess um or uh, a a cardboard box or a child's um lego set, or you know no whatever it is it's I have knowledge about those things, I know how they interact in the world, I know what would happen if my car crashed into them i have the ability to predict the future, the likely future, just of these very mundane kinds of things. I'm not even talking about poverty, happiness, et cetera. (laughs) But one of the problems with AI is that it doesn't have that broad knowledge of the world. And I learned in writing this book about self-driving cars that one of the problems they have is what should they stop for? And the biggest source of accidents in self-driving cars, you know, the experimental ones that are driving around, are people rear-ending them. And the reason for that is that they stop unexpectedly. They slam on the brakes because they think there's something there that they should stop for that no human would stop for. So they're unpredictable. So, of course, the human's at fault. You know, you're not supposed to follow that close. and right. But people do, you know. People expect cars to drive in a certain way. And these... Self driving cars don't have enough common sense, if you will. They don't have enough knowledge in the sense we're talking about to um, know what to do in uh, these kinds of situations that are different from, say, what they've been explicitly trained on.
0: You have an example. You have a couple examples in the book uh, we'll go into. One of them I love it's a photograph. It's a soldier returning. Oh, I, I don't know what it is exactly, right? That's what's beautiful about it. It's just a photograph. Next, to the sol- soldier's down on one knee. Uh, it, she's got her hair tied back. So at first, you, don't, might, you might not notice that it's a woman, but it is a woman. She's in camo gear, but when I showed it to my wife, it was a little dark in the room, and she thought it was a dress. Um, but it's, it's camouflage gear, so she's clearly, a, she has a big military backpack on. She's clearly a soldier. Uh, she's stooping down to pet a dog. She has a lot of emotion on her face, to my eye, but it's a little hard to read that emotion. It's not. There aren't tears. There's not, it's not obvious. She's in profile, so It's a little hard to see it, but I immediately see emotion, whether it's there or not. The dog, you can see its tail is blurry. So the, the, the dog's wagging its tail, and next to the two of them is a balloon that says, welcome home. So as you point out, we immediately see that, oh, soldier coming back from war or back from duty, seeing her dog. And it's an emotional, we make an immediate emotional connection. How does the computer see it at today's level of AI?
1: Well, if the computer has been trained uh, to to recognize objects, it probably will recognize uh, a person. It might say it's a man. Computers aren't that great about gender. It will uh, recognize a dog. It might recognize a balloon, I'm not sure. Um, but it won't be able to put the pieces together. It certainly is not anywhere near where humans are at recognizing like emotions or... Um the dog wagging its tail kind of uh, it won 't be able to p- put together the kind of story we put together when we 're looking at visual data or hearing about something in, in you know from a from a written story because it doesn 't have that world knowledge or that um, uh wisdom if you will about how the world works
0: so what I learned from your book uh, we'll try to get into it because it 's It's a little hard to do on a podcast without visuals, but the way that a computer could learn—I'm going to put learn in quotes, and we'll come back to that, too—but the way a computer could learn about that is it would look at a lot of photographs of faces uh, in that similar setting, look for things around the shape of the mouth of the person returning, maybe the eyebrows, um, maybe tears or other things— and then associate that with photographs that humans have labeled as sad, longing, uh, we can imagine a bunch of adjectives, so that eventually it could learn that the right way to caption that photo, which is currently at the current level, is more like a man and a dog, or maybe a soldier and a dog, or maybe a woman soldier and a dog, to something more human as a description, which would be soldier returns home and, and reencounters encounters uh, something that she loves and misses. And, but the way it would learn about that isn't by reading Jane Eyre, or a better example, I guess, would be uh, The Odyssey by Homer, where uh, Odysseus encounters his dog after whatever it is, 20 years. Um, it would be through a very mechanical process of association.
1: Yes, that's right. Uh, that That's, um, it would be. T- using today's technology, it would have to have maybe millions of photos of faces with different emotions, and they would all have to be labeled by humans as to what their emotions are, and then the syst- the, the, the computer would look at the pixels of the image, and right now the most common approach is using these so-called deep neural networks, which learn from these labeled images, um, and then the input is an image, the output is some kind of classification out of uh, some fixed number, like sad, happy, longing, you know, you could decide what your categories are. Um, and as you say, it's it's very mechanical. But I think that brings up another question, which is, what are we humans doing to, to, to um, learn that? learn what we see. Are we not mechanical in some sense? What, what else is there besides our neurons, our neurons firing, our, our you know, our memories? Uh, I think in some sense, we are mechanical, and I've actually had a lot of arguments with people, including my own mom, about this, uh, who doesn't buy that. Um, but that we're just, it, it's a matter of complexity. You know, it's, it's that we are so much more complex and evolved, if you will, evolved to have certain kinds of emotions or faces be very salient to us because that's so important in our lives and, you know, this sort of social sociality of humans, uh, that there are certain things that we are, in some sense, evolved to,
0: Learn. I think you quote, uh, is it Mitch Kapoor? I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Yeah. Mitch Kapoor says basically, artificial intelligence will never be, quote, intelligent until it goes through the uh, life experiences that a human brain experiences and categorizes those. And so it is possible that what we're really doing when we look at that photograph is, the, is exactly what you said. It's a mechanical process, some neurons fire. I remember. The last time I saw someone who looked something like this, we don't understand that process very well yet. We might get better at it. And the interesting question to me is whether that's going to help make AI better or just tell us something about our brains. But yeah, why don't you respond to that actually?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because going back to Ray Kurzweil and his singularity, if you actually re- read his books carefully, you you see that he actually agrees with that statement. He says, yes, you do have to be able to experience all these things. But his solution is that within... 20 years, we're going to have virtual reality that's indistinguishable from real reality, and that that's going to be used to train AIs, that AIs will actually go through a process of development in the way that we do, uh, but perhaps using virtual reality to speed it up.
0: You know, let's go back and talk about deep neural networks, because I hear that phrase a lot, um, it, it, it doesn't mean what it sounds like, um, as it turns out. The, the word, It's a very clever marketing phrase, though, because neural makes it sound like my brain, and deep makes it sound profound. So, what is it literally?
1: So, a neural network is a, a computer program that's inspired by the brain, particularly most neural networks these days are were inspired by the way the visual system works, where the visual system gets input. You know, light falls on your retina and then is processed in the brain through a series of layers of neurons. So the visual system is layered in a hierarchical way. A deep neural network is a simulated, simplified version of that with these layers. And deep refers to how many layers there are. So a shallow network has a small number of layers. A deep neural network has multiple layers. And that's all that deep means is sort of how many layers of simulated neurons there are in the network. Um, So the reason why deep, I mean, deep neural networks, the idea has been around since the sixties or seventies and people were experimenting with these things for a long time, but people never had enough data to train them uh, and they never had enough compute power to, make that training possible. So in the last decade, we have both huge amounts of data because of the, the World Wide Web and so on, and very fast parallel computers. So it's come together to allow these networks to actually start to shine in c- certain uh, tasks in vision and speech and language processing because of this convergence of big data and, and fast computer computing power.
0: So. Using that, and let's talk about the examples like um, uh, re- recognizing handwriting or recognizing um, uh, objects and, and identifying them correctly in a broad sense like dog versus cat. Um, one of the ways that happened was people had, as you say, access to lots of photographs all of a sudden through Flickr or Google Photos or other databases of photos. But then we had to get them labeled so that the neural network could practice, learn when it made a mistake, and go back and re-weight Basically, fundamentally, what that the so-called learning that goes on is it's it's reweighting the, um, the the
1: the connections between the simulated neurons
0: that that given a certain shape of darkness of a pixel, it decides that that was more likely to make it a dog rather than a cat in this in this particular region, right? And so uh, that required a lot of those millions of photographs to be labeled. And that was done through – a lot of that was done through Amazon's uh, Mechanical Turk, which is something I had heard of but I didn't know about. So, explain what that is and how that played a role. Because it's really an amazing thing, bizarreo yeah. bizarro thing. Yeah, <laughs> so
1: Amazon uh, created this web-based platform where people who had some job they needed to be done that couldn't be easily automated were, were able to hire people online – to do these jobs like here's a photograph tell me is it a dog or a cat i'll give you a penny for that
0: and we're really good at that
1: we're really good at that yeah no problem so so they 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 called it mechanical turk be this is a little bit obscure but yeah. back <laughs> many hundred years, years ago there was a, a ai hoax yeah. where uh, somebody oh. had built this um chess playing machine that had a puppet that would move the pieces. And the puppet was dressed as a, you know, Turkish Ottoman, I don't know what, but some kind of Turk. Uh, And so Amazon, and it was actually a person inside, hiding inside, so it was a hoax. So this is what Amazon, some, some genius at Amazon came up with this analogy, which says, okay, we have things, people, that are doing these tasks that are too hard for AI and we're paying the, you know, anybody can hire them. You can pay small amounts of money for simple tasks and they call it artificial, artificial intelligence (laughs) because it's, it's humans, right? (laughs) And this platform has grown. It's huge now. And in fact, researchers use it all the time for, getting people to label data getting people to be in psychology experiments or social science experiments uh all kinds of different tasks so you know this the this idea that ai is going to put people out of a job is a li- actually a little more complicated because ai now or the lack of thereof has created this huge set of very low paying jobs for people who are on this on this platform what what kind of
0: money would a person make on this You say it's a penny, a a label. Um,
1: Or 10 cents. You know, I don't know exactly.
0: So you don't know. So anyway, they they make some amount of money, and some people find this offensive because they don't make very much. But for some people, it's a nice way to do something relatively mindless that brings in a little more money. Uh, For some, this is an indictment of of the world we live in. And for others, it's like, wow, this is cool. Uh, We're going to leave that to the side. My my question is, how do we know they're labeling them correctly? Can't use the computer to check them because that's
1: the whole idea. Right. so this is a problem honor system no (laughs) no the honor system doesn't work and i i think most people don't maliciously mislabel them but sometimes they get lazy and or they make mistakes because they're trying to do too many too fast so there's a lot of methods people look at having like an image being labeled by multiple people and taking a majority vote of the Mm -hmm. category uh there's there's different methods for trying to verify these labels, but now people are trying to do e- even more complicated tasks On, for instance with natural language using Mechanical Turk, so I might ask you, here's two sentences, tell me if the first one entails the second one or contradicts the second one and this is like a task that they want computers to do, so they need data and it turns out that people will um, get those wrong oh. quite a bit, yeah. and as the more complicated the task the the, the more um, tricky the whole mechanical Turk thing is
0: yeah and I, I think that's of course that 's one of the challenges I, I think it'd be useful at this point if we kind of if you could summarize and I apologize for making you do this on the spot, but give us a somewhat summary of where we stand, so what are the great Let me try to make the list from what I read from your book and tell me if I leave anything off. So, a computer has beaten the best chess player in the world. Uh, A computer has beaten the best Go player in the world, which was one of the best, best, which was a game that people thought might not be amenable to a a computer doing because it's so open-ended. It's really gotten better at voice recognition so I can talk to my uh, assistant on my phone. Uh, It's Pretty good at handwriting recognition it 's pretty good it 's really good at certain crude image identifications that we 're talking about the self driving car thing it's really good it's it 's ninety percent of the way there, but as you point out, ninety um, percent of the way takes ten percent of the time and the last ten percent takes ninety percent of the time so we're not we're not really close despite what I was reading two or three years ago that it was imminent. We're not really close to autonomous driving at what has been called level five, where you could sit in the back and read a book and uh, enjoy uh, music and, and have a glass of wine. Um, am I missing anything important that AI has accomplished in the last twenty years? Say,
1: oh, um, well, I think there's a a lot of diff rather. Specific tasks. I mean, one thing is machine translation. Good one. Yeah, we I have forgot. between languages. Uh, we also have um, a lot of applications in medicine, with um, medical image analysis, medical, uh, re, you know, getting medical data and 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 trying to make sense of or make diagnoses from it. Um, there's been a lot of applications in scientific data analysis. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of all over the place, but, but each application is somewhat narrow and it's a particular, you know, you have to sort of start from scratch with building a system that will uh, do that application uh, rather than having some more general AI that would be able to do many different things.
0: Yeah, none of it. Correct me if I'm wrong. None of it is transferable. So the, the, the computer that can play Go can't play checkers. That's correct. It hasn't like figured out board games.
1: Right. And it can't even play a variation on Go. I mean, there, there is some very small – there's a lot of work on transferring AI f- tasks, you know. But I'd say for the most part, the, the state-of-the-art systems are not very transferable.
0: So let's talk about Watson for a minute. Watson, uh, which is the IBM computer that played Jeopardy and beat Ken Jennings, the longtime champion, and somebody else—I did not name—I don't know. But um, that gives the impression that it's it knows a lot of things. It doesn't just know one thing, but of course, it knows a lot of things very narrowly.
1: It has a lot of databases. Rather than saying it knows a lot of things, I would say it it has. The ability to look up things very quickly on Wikipedia and other big data database sites, um, and it was able to use some natural language processing to make sense of Jeopardy questions. It did really make, well.
0: Can make some jokes and yeah, puns understand
1: and, yeah. puns, um, but it does. It didn't seem like its knowledge was transferable in the way IBM touted it to be. Like, now they said, we're going to send Watson to medical school, <laughs> which is kind of a, you know, people took that seriously, but it's yeah. just its just really a kind of a quip. Uh, and we're going to have
0: but, it. But they meant it seriously in the sense that it would, they didn't put a lot of medical knowledge into the database. That's just not what medical school is, unfortunately. Oh, that it were.
1: <laughs> right, right. So now Watson has lots of medical data. And it's supposed to be able to answer questions about the domain of medicine. But it turns out that that's very different than answering Jeopardy questions. And it didn't do as well. Uh, it's a little bit hard to get, get at exactly what Watson can do now. But my understanding is that Watson that played Jeopardy no longer exists. That program has been completely changed into using deep learning and other Current modern AI tools, just the way that Google and Microsoft and all the other companies do. So IBM now has what it calls Watson, which is just a platform of of computing tools.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's sad to, to think that 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 the entity that I'm being facetious here, the entity that that defeated Ken Jennings, is no more. Um, and if you saw, um, no spoilers here, but X Machina. Plays on this the movie plays on this human relationship to AI. Uh, I don't know if Ken Jennings is sad that that, <laughs> that that Watson we give it a name a humanish name right, right. Watson. It's named after the founder of IBM, but you might think it's Sherlock Holmes's partner, which is ironic given that he was sort of the naive, not so smart one. He was the straight line guy. Um, I don't think Ken Jennings – is think he's sad? I don't think he's sad.
1: I don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. He wants a rematch and he's yeah, gone. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, I don't know if that Watson could be resurrected or not. Maybe it could. Oh, yeah. But it's not the same Watson that is being marketed for health care, for tax preparation, for legal advice and so on. That's a completely different set of tools. Well,
0: ideally it would be smarter because it's had time to pass and get smarter.
1: Right, but as you say, data is not knowledge. Data is not intelligence.
0: So, in all these examples, given what, and I think that I think that was a fair uh, summary of what where we're at. Um, my take, and I suspect it's yours. So I'll give you a chance to respond. My take is that almost none of that is what we would call as human beings intelligence
1: intelligence is one of uh, those words that means different things in different contexts and means different things to different people. You know, here we are sitting in Washington, D.C., and I think a lot of the country, a lot of people in the country think, oh, Congress, there's no intelligence there, right? (laughs) But when I go around giving talks about AI and I say, well, computers aren't very intelligent yet, people will tell me, well human beings aren't very intelligent either right but they're using the term very differently intelligence isn't just one thing it's not yes or no a yes or no thing either and i think one of the problems is we don't have a good sense of what intelligence is we don't understand our own intelligence very well our state of understanding the brain is 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 still quite limited. Our understanding of human psychology is still rather limited. And I think intelligence is one of those terms that's kind of a placeholder for things we don't understand yet. It's kind of a phenomenon that we kind of have a general idea of what it is, but we don't know specifically. And it's just waiting for more scientific advances to replace it with something more useful.
0: I think it was Rodney Brooks here on the program. quoted, I think it's Marvin Minsky, saying that there are these things called suitcase words, and intelligence would be one of those things. We put some things in that suitcase when it's convenient. If it's not, we take it out. Um, But I guess what I had in mind is this idea of transference or uh, connection, what I think of as, as human, or better yet, something beyond what was programmed into it. That would be even a narrower, straightforward thing. As far as I can tell from what your overview of the field is in your book, computers can't teach themselves anything except what they've been programmed to learn. They can't go, quote, to learn, program to input, transfer, translate an input into an output. They can't then add something to it. That would be one measure of intelligence. Or at least I think it's a measure of intelligence.
1: Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's tricky to talk about this because, because of course, if I train a, a computer program to recognize dogs in images, they can recognize dogs in images that I've never shown them. Right? So that's sort of a generalization.
0: Yeah.
1: But they m- probably, if they haven't ever seen it, they can't recognize a dog in a cartoon or they can't recognize a, a, a painting of a dog. So in AI, people talk about this notion of distribution, which is kind of a statistics idea that your data has a certain distribution. Sort of the dogs in, in your training data have a certain kind of range of features that your system, your system learns. And if you show it a new thing that is within that range of features, then it can recognize it. But if it's outside of that distribution, it won't be able to transfer its knowledge to that. And that's something that we humans are able to do. One of the things that uh, kind of surprised me, there's a huge focus in AI on this thing called transfer learning, which is exactly what we're talking about. That is, learn one thing, learn to play chess, be able to transfer your knowledge to variations of chess or to checkers.
0: Read a CT scan, then you can read x-ray, then you could know what,
1: Yeah, yeah. And this is called transfer learning, and it's huge. But transfer learning is exactly what we humans call learning. Yeah, right. <laughs> so what these systems are, not, are doing is not learning in the human sense, because we assume that if you've learned something, you can use that knowledge in a new, very new situation. Uh, that's still a challenge for AI.
0: We're in D.C. at the... At, um the D.C. office of the Hoover Institution. But when I'm out at Stanford, I inevitably get sucked into the the tech world. And um, they're very utopian there. They they think tech can solve all problems. A lot of people do think that. And I find that very seductive because I like to believe that to be true. I find it, there's something comforting about that. Um, But what I've learned in the last five years is how often the claims of these uh, tech evangelists are overstated. Uh, I mentioned autonomous self-driving cars, way overstated. An extreme example would be Theranos, which turned to be a a fraud, but the idea that, you know, one drop of blood, we're going to diagnose 70 diseases. Um, That that machine learning is going to solve all problems. Um, It's going to, or artificial intelligence. And there's an enormous amount of hype. Now, some of that hype comes from the media, and you give a lot of examples in the book of Mm -hmm. headlines that were misleading or, misdescribing studies that were much more modest. Um, it's an inevitable human problem. And I, one of the things I learned from your book is just, again, to be so sensitive to that because so, uh, it's so suggestive.
1: Sure. Um, I, I think uh, hype has been a problem in AI since the very beginning of the field. People, intelligence, com, intelligent computers, that's such a, you know, law or not—not not even just computers, but machines in general. That's such a long-held goal for 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 humanity, uh, and I think the hype has gotten almost worse. The the better AI works. <laughs> uh, okay. One reason is that um, it's there's a couple reasons. One is just. Whenever uh, a technology becomes commercialized, then there's this sort of need to sell it. (laughs) And so people sell it, right? I mean, that's just what the nature of uh, of marketing. Uh, So we've gotten a hype from the companies. You know, IBM advertising Watson is one very (laughs) salient uh, example of that. But also, um, I think people often... When we see an intelligence, an AI system like Siri, for example, we tend to anthropomorphize it. It has a name, it has a voice, it almost has a personality. You know, we tend to give it more credit than it actually deserves for thinking or being intelligent or understanding. And that's a very human uh, reaction. And that's also led to some of the hype, I think people actually believing in what they say about the intelligence.
0: Yeah, I gave my parents an Alexa to help them listen to music, which was a great decision. It, it beat all my, the other solutions my brother and sister and I tried to come up with for them. But um, it's like they have a you know a border in their house. They're very close to her. Yeah. <laughs> they, 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 you know, and they'll say things like, I couldn't believe it. Alexa knew about.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you saw we saw this back in the 60s when Joseph Weisenbaum created Eliza which was a psychotherapist chat bot, essentially. Yeah. And it was the most simple program. It had a few templates, it, 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 you know, it had some keywords. It was supposed to be a particular kind of th- psychotherapist. So if you said something about your mother, it would say, tell me more about your mother. And <laughs> it had little <laughs> templates like that. Yeah. Uh, and it, people wanted to talk to it. People wanted to tell it their deepest secrets. They really believe that here's finally something that somebody that understands me, <laughs> and is willing to listen to me and really listen to me, because it would take what you said and like play it back and say and tell me more about that and what do you think about that and how do you feel about that and Weizenbaum was horrified, and in fact that he became an activist, an anti AI activist because of the way that people interacted with with this program.
0: So one of the challenges of of um... The depth of these neural networks and other techniques is that there 's a certain black box aspect to some of the knowledge that comes out of these systems, answers that come out of these systems you know some of those sometimes we might not care we just want the answer we just want to know whether it 's a tumor that 's benign or malignant and or whether there 's a tumor at all, and how it got to it we don 't need to understand, but a lot of people are very troubled by this. Uh, one obvious example that you discuss in the book is. Uh, bias that's built into AI answers because the data that the AI has been learning on is biased because it comes from a set of human sources, whether it's those people categorizing the photos or just human language. Um, there's a lot of issues about sexism in particular that I've that I've seen, and there's a hope we can de-bias some of this stuff. Um, what's your feeling whether we should be concerned about that? And is there, is there going to be ways around that to help people understand? Like, you know, we talked about this with um, uh, Catherine O'Neill in our episode with her, you know, issues of, you know, sentencing people to jail. This is not like, oh, I want to know the height of the Eiffel Tower. It's, um, it's very serious stuff.
1: The idea of explainability is very tricky in AI. There's almost a inverse relationship between the 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 success of a system and its explainability at least with these deep neural networks the deeper and that is like the more layers the more neurons the more connections in these networks the better they tend to do because they're able to model the data more successfully but then it's harder to figure out what they did you know you have millions of of weights or billions even now and no high-level insight into why the machine's making the decisions it does. So that's a big problem. And a lot of people are working on ways to make the machines more explainable or uh, kind of uh, almost... Virtual microscopes that can have you go in, and or, or you might, you know, if you want to make an analogy with neuroscience, little probes that can go in and <laughs> figure out what the what this artificial brain is doing. But it's it's certainly an unsolved problem, and 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 I think there's also a problem like what is an explanation? What counts as an explanation? This is a philosophical problem, yeah. you know. But but it's also very real. So, for instance, um, the European Union has this GDPR uh, law on data. And one of, the, one of the parts of the law is that, that algorithms that make decisions that affect people's lives have to be able to explain their decision-making. But what does that mean exactly? Does it mean, like, I have to tell you all the values of the weights? Is that an explanation? Well, no, of course not. No human understands that. But explanation is kind of subject- subjective. It depends, like, what the goal is and what who I'm explaining it to, and so on. So, the, that's, I think, a very unsolved issue.
0: Well, it's interesting. I never thought about it. But, of course, human beings can't explain why they do what they do. They lie. We lie. We fool ourselves. We self-deceive, right? The idea of saying, no, oh, I know why I gave you this gift, paid this compliment, shunned you. Um, you know, there's a thousand reasons. And... um I don't know if we'll ever understand that about ourselves, uh, but we could understand something about, like you say, the data, the weights of the mechanical system.
1: You know, I, bears, I mean. <laughs> a lot of people f- have said, well, humans can't explain their thinking either, so why should we make AI th- explain its thinking? But I think that's actually a false argument because humans can explain their thinking. They're, they're, we definitely d- aren't perfect at it, but we certainly have, you know, they want to judge makes a ruling, they don't just say yes or no, but they write a, a long explanation for their ruling. They talk about how they took into account all the, diff- the evidence and all of that. Um, and when something really matters, like if I say I'm going to sentence you to 20 years in prison because this algorithm said I should, <laughs> yeah. I think there, there must be a way to, or there has to be required to be a way to explain What evidence is taking into account?
0: Well, I think the challenge – you mentioned Washington, D.C. and the – if I was uncharitable, I'd call it a sausage factory, um, you know, government-creating legislation. We don't literally get to see all of it, but we get to see quite a bit of it now. We get to see votes. That's a start, uh, which would be like the weights. Um, But we understand those weights. We understand that this person voted for that and is accountable at the ballot box. The AI is not accountable in the same way, and so it's I think it's the need for transparency there and what transparency would mean is something we're going to have to talk about
1: yeah figure it's, out I don't, it's absolutely uh, it's on everyone's mind, but it, again like like all the other things it's not a solved problem yet
0: but some of it though and you're you're suggesting may not be solvable it, at the using the current techniques that would in a way that would be uh, amenable to Evaluating whether it's "quote fair" or whether it's biased, or those kind of issues.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, I it, it, it it's it's how to say this. Uh, it the whole issue of bias is, is now very worrying a lot of people, and our world is biased. We know that, and therefore the data that we produce and that we train the machines on is biased, it, it goes very deep. Machines, so for example, facial recognition is, performs uh, worse on uh, dark darker skin than lighter skin. And that's partially because of the biased data that's given. But also, I found out that it's cameras themselves the electronics and cameras are tuned better for lighter skin than for darker skin. Surprise. So that's, you know, it's really going to be hard to de-bias algorithms with a biased society that that where it's so deep and so almost invisible.
0: I'm going to take one more example from the book that I just loved. Um, and we'll talk in a minute about how thinking about AI helps you with thinking about human beings. It was one of the examples that did that for me. You say it's time for a story. And the story is called The Restaurant. It's a very it's a very short story. I'm going to read it. A man went into a restaurant and ordered a hamburger cooked rare. When it arrived, it was burned to a crisp. The waitress stopped by the man's table. "Is the burger okay?" she asked. "Oh, it's just great," the man said, pushing back his chair and storming out of the restaurant without paying. The waitress yelled after him, "Hey, what about the bill?" She shrugged her shoulders, muttering under her breath, why is he so bent out of shape? So the question, it's a great story, Mm -hmm. and you you riff on it quite a bit in a very effective way to talk about language, how subtle language is. And bent out of shape doesn't mean he's physically contorted. Mm -hmm. The bill that he didn't pay is not a reference to the beak of a bird or legislation passed by a parliament or Mm -hmm. congress, et cetera. Uh, And when he said, oh, it's just great, he was being sarcastic. We know all those things instantly when we read the story. The way you summarize it, though, which I love, is, did the man eat the hamburger?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's actually, um, I kind of stole that idea from Roger Shank, an a, a old-time AI natural language person who had these little stories like that and asked those kinds of questions. And also John Searle, a philosopher who, 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 who used that Example of, of eating a hamburger uh, t- to talk about whether machines could really understand anything, so right I mean that 's kind of the idea that knowledge about back back to knowledge and our knowledge about the world. We know the man probably didn 't eat the hamburger, even though it 's not said in the story explicitly. We can read between the lines, but how do you get machines to do that how do they how do you get them to have the kinds of knowledge about the world that they could use to make sense of such a story. And it's very hard.
0: And of course, there are people who misinterpret stories, don't get jokes. Um, language is hard for us too. We're really good at a lot of it, most of us, but not all of us are. And all of us struggle at various times uh, to miss and misunderstand stuff.
1: Well, I was, I, I, for instance, here. here's a kind of self-referential issue. I was recently talking to uh, the person who's coordinating the Chinese translation of my book. Okay. And
0: just use Google Translate. exactly.
1: <laughs> so I talk about how translating this story into Chinese into in the book. and now how are they you know, and I don't think I'm not sure the Chinese translators are going to understand that story, even though they know English right. pretty well. I mean, it's very idiomatic. So how do you actually translate something like that without having the sort of cultural knowledge? You know translation is is really complicated.
0: So it's easy. You just have the translators or the machine watch a couple million American movies and they'll they'll know. They'll just know. There you go. Uh, um yeah, well, there's a-
1: That's go pretty funny because that's actually a strategy for AI, common sense yeah. that is being undertaken. Is is there's a common sense uh competition on watching sort of movie clips and Answering common sense questions about the clips,
0: <laughs> and are they going to get better? You think?
1: I don't know. <laughs>
0: you have some very amusing examples in the book of where you take that story, translate it into a different language, and then translate back into English using the same technology. And of course, things get mangled. Um, things get burnt to a crisp in the <laughs> yeah in, in the in the translation. Yeah. Um, one of the things that your book forced me to do, and I'm curious how you felt writing it. Um, it made me think a lot about what is distinctive about humans. And I, in the course of our conversation, I've given a couple examples where I said, you know, I said, well, humans can't do that either perfectly. But we do a lot of things shockingly well. Um, you make a big distinction, which I like, between easy things being hard and hard things being easy. Chess seems hard, but brute force and lots of computing power made some real progress there. But easy things like common sense are really hard. Yeah. And talk about what you think what you've learned about yourself or humans in, in the course of writing the book.
1: So I I've learned how much of our intelligence is invisible to us, mm-hmm. how all the time we're able to make generalizations and transfer what we've learned to new situations and make abstractions and metaphors and so on in a kind of invisible way. We don't even know we're doing it. And this is, I think is one of the reasons that people misjudged how hard AI would be. We have all these people like Marvin Minsky back in the sixties, predicting that we'd have, you know, human level machines in 15 years from then. And it's still going on. And I think that we still don't recognize how much of our intelligence kind of is below the surface There's been some approaches to common sense reasoning in machines by building in all the common sense. I talk about one example in the book called Psych, C-Y-C, by Doug Lennett, um, where the idea was just to have this huge database of common sense knowledge. Like, you can't be in two places at one time, things like that. But the problem is...
0: Penny saved is a penny earned. There you go.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The problem is that We can't write it down because so much of it is unconscious. So now there's this big grand challenge from DARPA, one of the defense department agency that funds a lot of AI research. And the grand challenge is to create a machine that has the common sense of an 18 month old baby by going through all the developmental stages that babies go through. And this is the perfect example of easy things are hard because you know, we have machines that can do all these fancy things like translate between languages and play Go and uh, et cetera. But one of the biggest grand challenges and huge amounts of money being put into it are, is create a, like an 18-month-old month baby.
0: <laughs> uh, you give a great example in the book of charades, a game that a six-year-old plays effortlessly would be incredibly hard for a computer.
1: Right. Yeah, I'll give credit to Gary Marcus for that one. That's his example.
0: So Here's a quote from um, Jeffrey Jefferson that you give in the book, uh, Neurologist, and I want to hear your reaction to it. I, you probably reacted to it in the book, but do it here. You say, he wrote, not until a machine can write a sonnet or compose a concerto because of thoughts and emotions felt, and not by the chance fall of symbols, could we agree that machine equals brain. That is, not only write it, but know that it had written it. No mechanism could feel and not merely artificially signal, an easy contrivance, pleasure at its successes, grief when its val- valves fuse, be warmed by flattery, be made miserable by its mistakes, be charmed by sex, be angry or depressed when it cannot get what it wants. What do you think of that quote?
1: I love that quote. And in fact, that quote comes from Alan Turing's paper where he proposes what's now called the Turing test. And I think he. He brings up an interesting question, which is, how would we know? Say we're talking to a machine and it's talking like, just like a human. We can't tell the difference. How would we know if it ha- had all these qualities, you know, that, if it, that it was charmed by sex and all of that stuff? Uh, it's really difficult. How do I even know that you, you right. know, have gone through all these experiences or that have an inner life? Right. I don't. don't. It's the same yeah. old question. So that's yeah. sort of the, the Turing test kind of tries to get around that. But it turns out to be a little too easy for, because of our human propensity to anthropomorphize, it becomes too easy to pass the Turing test.
0: Yeah, my example is uh, the robot that is a vacuum cleaner but regrets it never w- was a self-driving car. I, I <laughs> right? That, that would be a human, we would call that a human Experience. Of course, one argument would be are emotions relevant at all, right? Some would say it has nothing to do with it.
1: Right. I think I think emotions are fundamental to thought. That's my opinion. But I don't think we know enough to to say, you know, there there's this idea, kind of a classic trope in philosophy of mind of the brain in the vat. Yeah. And This brain in the vat, you know, it has input, it has output, it's exactly like a brain, but it doesn't have any experiences in the world. What's the difference between that and us? Are we just brains and vats that are, you know, some simulation is playing out that seems like reality? I mean, all of this stuff, all of these old, old philosophical questions are still here. We still don't have good answers to them.
0: Yeah, I I um you know we have wants and um I, I tried to write an essay on this, so I'll I'll link to it and I, I'm not gonna try to get all the pieces right, but the I, I think I'm a i I'm channeling um Harry Frankfurt and um Rabbi James Jacobs and Mazels in these two in this thought, but it was the idea is that we have wants. But we have wants about our wants as well, right? So I have a desire for ice cream, but I also have a desire not to want it too much. We could program a computer to be rewarded by ice cream. Could it ever get to the point where it felt guilty about that or uneasy about it, et cetera? And and is not consciousness some level of that level of desiring? Not just desiring, but having desires about our desires.
1: Yeah. I, I think that's a big part of consciousness is having awareness of our own awareness, having yeah. desires about our desires, having emotions about our emotions, et cetera, all that meta kind of stuff. You know, we our intelligence in humans it's been evolved for specific purposes, I think. And it's not necessary it's not necessarily true that any intelligence would have the same kind of purpose that we have, the same kind of sort of architecture, desires, or goals, or whatever. But anything that's going to be in our human world, you know, that's going to be driving around in our human world with other humans or uh, being our our virtual assistant or what have you, that thing is going to have to have some human-like qualities to be able to deal with us. So I think that, you know, whatever we build, if we want it to be useful to us, it's going to have to have the kind of human understanding that we have.
0: Early on in your book, you say something. It's almost in in you say it in passing, and it was actually jarred me and woke, made me think a lot. You said Google is an applied AI company, and I was thinking, what an extraordinary thing this is that this company that started off as a quote search engine, which is really lo- lovely and useful thing, has transformed itself in this either ultimately terrifying way or extraordinarily. Exciting way into a million other things, right? And that is exactly what it is. It's an applied AI company, and it's it's unusual uh, how much research is going on right now inside profit-driven companies, which I think is glorious. Mostly, mostly, uh, I'm a, something a little uneasy about it because I'm worried about the feedback loops. But listeners know about that and leave that alone. But the point, the point is, is that this a lot of fundamental research. Ray Kurzweil. Works at Google, which is nuts. <laughs> it's not <laughs> obvious that, that there's anything profitable about his vision. But he's a really smart guy, so they put him on the payroll. And I have a lot of friends who work there who are just really smart. And they do sort of think tank things within this unimaginably profitable company because they can afford to have folks like that that might not turn out to have practical applications. They don't really care. They like to be around them. So here's this strange company. So my question is, and they're not alone. There's other, they're not close to alone going on in China. We had Amy Webb talking about that. Uh, it's going on at Apple. So it's going on at Facebook, it's going, et cetera. Is this, how scared are you uh, about the implication this, of this for humanity? Is, it, is this a somewhat troubling thing, deeply troubling, or not to be, or you not troubled at all?
1: Um, I would say somewhere between somewhat troubled and deeply troubled. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> There, there's just a few companies that have so much power because they have so much data. That's one thing. And they have so much kind of control over what we see, what, what we think, what we do. Uh, I find that really troubling. And, um, but on the other hand, uh, as you say, it, it's, in the past it was unusual for big companies to participate in basic research and it that we're seeing a lot of that at at these companies and it's it's they're good. doing they're doing great work. Yep.
0: Good for you, good for your students. <laughs> yeah, my
1: students <laughs> all are working at big companies and, and you know, working on really interesting problems, doing things they want to do and solving important problems, I think. But you know, I don't know. I don't really trust these big companies who are profit mo- their motive is profit to to do the right thing and a lot of them aren't are doing what I think mm is not the right thing. I mean, there's a lot of argument about what is the right thing. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of potential danger for AI, not that we're going to get super intelligent, billion times smarter than we are, AI that's going to enslave us, but more that we're deploying AI that is not up to the task, that is not general or smart enough to, to be autonomous. So Pedro Domingo, who I think you said you interviewed, had a great quote that I put in the book, which is that it's not that AI is too smart and going to take over the world. It's that it's too dumb and it's already taken over the world. And I totally agree with that.
0: You give the example, it's really chilling, of two photographs. You look at them, they, to the hum- and literally to the human eye, not just like, oh, there's a, there's a hidden thing that you have to look for a while to see it. You can't see anything at First glance for sure, maybe many glances, it looks like the same photograph, but a handful of pixels have been altered and the, the algorithm misidentifies the photograph radically. It calls the school bus an ostrich, say. Yeah. Um, the opportunity for human beings to use AI maliciously, malevolently, forget the kind of bias issues we talked about that are that are worrisome and troubling, but the opportunity for people to deliberately... Steer things in ways that would be destructive. I worry a lot about the next presidential election and the one after that, where the ability to create video and photographs that will be indistinguishable from uh, other actual foot news footage is going to be hard to resist for folks, both the creators and the viewers
1: right so there's the, so you 're talking about a couple of things there one is the the sort of deep fake or or fake media like videos and, and even language now. We have these language generators that are, are quite convincing. Um, and how to detect that something's real or fake, that's, that's going to be harder and harder. So that's one problem. The other problem is the, the ability that humans have, especially if you know something about AI, to fool AI systems like facial recognition systems or object recognition systems or even uh, language interpretation systems by subtly changing their inputs um, in, in targeted ways. So those are called adversarial attacks because an adversary can attack an AI system. And people have shown that it's actually not that hard to do. So the systems are not reliable in that sense if humans are out to get them. Uh, on the, a, a, and the, the other thing you're talking about is, you know, the systems are, can fool us. <laughs> so yeah. it kind of goes both ways. Uh, so yeah, I think that the potential for malicious uh, uses of, of AI systems is the thing that Hofstadter should be terrified about, uh, not that AI systems are going to take away our humanity.
0: You know, a lot of people, I think it's absurd and I find it almost offensive. They say things like, well, we just need to teach AI researchers more ethics. You know, make, them, make them take a course in ethics so that they'll know, you know about the right thing to do. That strikes me as the wrong way to solve this problem.
1: Yeah, wrong in so many ways. For one thing, who's ethics? For another thing, ethics is a very complex conceptual uh, thing, and c- computers have no concepts. They don't have the, the, you know, understanding ethics and being ethical is maybe equivalent to being intelligent in a way. Yeah. I don't think that you can have th- learn ethics on the side, as at the same time you're learning like self driving, you're learning how to drive on a highway.
0: But I was thinking more about your students that, that when you teach them, you should make sure that they know to do the right oh, thing. Right. You know, this yeah. sort of Google do no, do, no, do, no, um, do no evil. And there's a billboard now in, in, on the um, 101 in the Bay Area, which I love. It, it has the Google slogan do no evil. And um, they've cr- they've crossed out the word do. It, it says, no, I'm not, I'm not quoting the slogan, right? What's the Google slogan? Don't be evil. Don't be evil. Don't be evil as if that's enough. Just tell them, explain it to them. That's bad to be evil. And of course, that's not enough. Right. <laughs> but the, the billboard actually, they've crossed out the word um, don't and put can't. Can't be evil. And that strikes me, and it's obviously an ad for some piece of software or project that is going to put, some kind of ethics built into it, rather than just relying on the good-natured training of the of the programmers.
1: Um, yeah, uh, now in computer science, in academic computer science, uh, to be accredited as a computer science program, you have to author, uh, offer an ethics class, and it's required. So few.
0: Oh, <laughs> now we don't have to be worried anymore,
1: right? So I don't think that's going to solve many problems. That it's more of a systemic issue uh, about how our society is organized.
0: Yeah. So three of the smartest people in the world, at least on paper, um, Stephen Hawking, Elon Musk, and Nick Bostrom, guest on this program, are, are worried about some aspect of AI run amok. Y- your book and all of our conversations so far suggest that either they're just simply wrong or it's so far away in the future, it's the, not the thing we need to be worried about. How would you react to their level of anxiety?
1: Uh, <laughs> probably both, both of those things. Uh, I think even though they're f- smartest people in the world, probably a lot smarter than I am, uh, they don't understand intelligence. And I don't claim that I understand intelligence either, so maybe I'm wrong. But I think that it, the, the, the idea that they have is that you can have um, sort of super intelligent AI that is just missing. All it's missing is the, the sort of um, alignment, as they call it, with our values. And so what we need to do is make sure that it's aligned with our values. As if that, the, the alignment with values is just this malleable switch that you can turn on and off or, you know, the system could kind of learn about values rather than thinking that an intelligent system is actually a very complicated thing that sort of develops in a society, in a culture that isn't just sort of created de novo um, and would develop values through being embedded in, in a culture. I mean, that's kind of my view. And I think that they have a... Too simplified idea of intelligence. Uh, I wrote a, a New York Times op-ed about this recently, and I was in there. I quoted um, from Stuart Russell, uh, who, who who's uh, wrote a book called Human Compatible about aligning AI ethics with ours or values. and And he said, "Well, what if we had a super intelligent AI and we we charged it with the problem of solving c- climate change, and it decided that." the best way to reduce carbon would be to kill off all the humans. Okay? So the idea there is that we have a super intelligent AI. It's super intelligent, but at the same time, it, it doesn't figure out that human life is something we might want to preserve. Uh, that just seems crazy to me, and it just seems like a, a misconstrual of the word intelligent.
0: Let's close and talk about the anthropology of your field. I'm an outsider. You know, I like talking to you. I like talking to people in the field. It's clearly an important thing. It's, in, it's growing, you know, for all of the pessimism that, that I've talked about that I've got out of your book. It's still, it's an incredible human achievement what we've been able to do with AI to date. So I, I certainly don't want to denigrate that. Um, I think it's most of what it does is wonderful. Um, but in your field... My perception, so tell me if I'm right or wrong, is that there's this sort of bifurcation between these um, optimists, and maybe you call them realists or pessimists, I don't know, about what, what what's potentially going to happen and Skeptics, when. Skeptics. Skeptics, okay. So, give me a little bit of the lay of that land and, and what kind of reaction your book's getting because of that. and
1: um, Yeah, I think there is kind of a, a split um... And it's a little more nuanced than that. I think most people in AI would agree that we're pretty far from what we might call human-level AI, but disagree on what that actually is, right? What is human-level intelligence? That's, you know, a big, big question. And also disagree on, like, what should the field be aiming towards? Should it be aiming towards... Some general, you know, AGI, artificial general intelligence, or should it be focusing more on narrow, the kinds of narrow AI we have now? And also just how to get there. Uh, should we? There, there's this big fight that's been going on for at least the last 40 years, probably about innateness versus learning. So it's kind of like the nature versus nurture debate. Mm-hmm. How much should we build into an AI system? in terms of programming and knowledge versus how much should we let it learn on its own. And there's problems with each approach. But that's, you know, that debate just goes on and on. So I think the field is quite diverse in people's opinions. There's been some attempts to survey people in the field as to, like, when are we going to have human-level AI? And the, 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 it's just like a uniform distribution, essentially.
0: Yeah, whatever that means. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, what I love about... This conversation, I now know that that's not even a meaningful question and that that survey is just a a clickbait (laughs) opportunity for somebody. (laughs)
1: That's right. That's right. We just don't have a clue. So, to me, what's exciting about AI is the insight that it can give to us about our own intelligence and about sort of the nature of intelligence in general. So, I get as excited by the failures as I do by the successes because that I think they, we can learn something from, maybe even more, learn more from the failures than we do from the successes. Um, I, I love being able to um, talk to my phone and have it transcribe what I say. I, I love getting into you know, my car and having it figure out a route for me to take. There's a lot of things that I really... Uh, I use Google Translate... Now, Douglas Hofstadter, I hope he's not listening to this, because if he is, he'd be furious at me because he hates all these things. But uh, I benefit a lot by AI, and I think a lot of people do. And there's a potential to benefit even more. But there's also all these trade-offs and risks. So it's like any other technology that's very successful. You know, I think of, like, genetic engineering. There's some incredible potential benefits, but there's also huge risks. And we need people not just in AI or executives at big companies, but a lot, a lot of different fields kind of thinking about this and talking about it uh, and giving different perspectives. So I'm hoping that will happen. And I think people, you know, my book... I've gotten some, a lot of good feedback. I've gotten a few people disagreeing with little things in the book. But overall, I think, you know, people are saying, well, thanks. You know, it's, it's really uh, opened up my mind about what AI is and how it works and what its limitations are and prospects. So that was my goal.
0: My guest today has been Melanie Mitchell. Her book is Artificial Intelligence. Melanie, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks so much.